COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. Hello, friends, and welcome to Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and we are discussing Colorado true crime stories. I want to start off with a big thank you to all of my returning listeners. You guys are amazing. You have no idea how exciting it is to see the number of downloads tick up for Altitude Crime every week, and I could not do it without you. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, welcome, and thanks so much for being here. I know it's still on your screen, so go ahead and follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast, and on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Please comment with your thoughts on this episode, and please don't hesitate to suggest a crime. These last two episodes have been a suggestion and they've been awesome, so please send any stories you'd like to hear along. This is the second part of our two-part story about serial killer Scott Lee Kimball. If you haven't listened to part one yet, stop right now. Go back to episode four and get caught up before you listen to this continuing saga about the killer deemed the Colorado Hannibal. Otherwise, you might be a tad lost. Again, I want to give a big shout out to my friend Emma for the recommendation on this case. I had no clue about it when I started writing it, and it has been an interesting one to research and share with you all. 
Last week, we discussed Kimball's year and a half long killing spree that took place after he was released from prison in December 2002. In 2009, Kimball was tucked neatly away in Sterling Correctional Facility, located about two and a half hours southeast of Denver. But with what we have learned about Kimball so far, we knew he wouldn't spend his sentence as quiet and behaved. After eight years behind bars, Kimball would hit the headlines again in 2017. He planned a prison break that sounds like something out of a movie. At the head of the plan were Kimball and Mark Sylvester, another convicted murderer. The plan started with two contract killings, one for each of them. I'm not sure who Sylvester's target was, but Kimball's target was an old business partner he wanted to get revenge on. Byron Dave was in on the cattle ranch that Kimball and Lori resided at when Uncle Terry won the lottery. I am assuming the ranch went under fast considering Kimball's pension for check fraud, murder, and following incarceration. Byron was left with nothing once the business ended. Byron was really surprised he was even on Kimball's hit list. And can you blame the guy? Kimball has got some gall. It sounds like Byron should have been the one wanting revenge. Byron may have gotten duped by Kimball, but he wasn't the only one. Kimball targeted a lot of people with good-sounding business ventures, then cleaned them out before moving on to the next person. The executor of the plan was supposed to be a third inmate who was soon to be released. This inmate had been in prison with Kimball for two years. Kimball convinced him that he had a million dollars buried in Montana near a ranch and that he would pay this guy handsomely for his assistance in the prison break. He failed to ever mention how he got a million dollars. And I'm going to call this out. I view this a bit like the old adage of if you have to tell someone how popular you are, you probably aren't that popular. If you have to tell someone you have a million dollars, you don't have a million dollars. This third inmate would be the one to murder the two targets that Kimball and Sylvester had identified. This was set to happen on September 21st and 22nd of 2017. This third inmate would then rent a helicopter under a false pretense and force the pilot to land in the prison yard. Kimball and Sylvester would be waiting in the prison yard to board the helicopter and escape. The group would then fly to a rental car parked nearby and drive to Alaska. And I need to stop right here and unpack this because this scheme is ludicrous. First of all, Kimball has a thing with Alaska, doesn't he? That is also where he told Lori he was when he was making his initial run from the cops in California. Also, the drive from Sterling, Colorado to Alaska would take 54 hours or almost two and a half days straight. And instead of ending up in Canada, you are going to go right back on to U.S. soil where it would be easier to extradite you back to Colorado. This is literally the dumbest plan I have ever heard. 
Now, as dumb as it sounds, two women had actually done this exact thing in Colorado in 1989. They landed in the Arkansas Valley Correctional Center in Crowley County to get their husbands out of jail. They made it to Nebraska about 400 miles away before being captured. So just as a fun little note here, if this idea had worked and Kimball would have made it the 400 miles that these women did, it would have landed him around Buffalo in North Wyoming they would have made it one state. Kimball's plan was foiled before it ever got off the ground. (laughs) Helicopter pun intended. (laughs) When one of the family members of the third inmate convinced them to tell the DEA instead of going through with their part of the plan. The DEA was notified in April 2016. In exchange for the information, the identity of the informant has been kept confidential. Kimball would enforce the informant's claim by proceeding to give him information about his mark, Byron Dave's home and life that would help in creating a plan to kill him. At the instruction of the DEA, the informant acted like they had already committed one murder and set a time for the helicopter to be chartered. Kimball and Sylvester would wait in the yard for far past the arranged helicopter landing time. Once they returned inside from the yard, both men received felony charges. FBI Special Agent John Grusing, who has worked the Kimball case for over 10 years now, believed manipulative Kimball was at the top of the plan and that Sylvester was only an accomplice. So, for the third time, Kimball is now safely away from the public. But that does not mean that he is not still potentially causing heartbreak outside of prison. The FBI thinks that Kimball could have killed between 15 and 21 people. I wanted to take time in the second episode to lay out the four unsolved cases that Kimball has been publicly linked to. Now, this is a little off theme for the podcast as two of these four cases did not take place in Colorado, but in following the web that is Kimball's life, they're just too intriguing to not cover. The oldest case Kimball is potentially connected to is also the most dramatic. This is the murder of Peggy Hetrick. Peggy lived in Fort Collins, Colorado. She was 37 and worked as a sales clerk. She dated around and had a boyfriend that she was often on and off with. She was a frequent flyer at the local library and hoped to someday write a novel. According to Kevin Vaughn's reporting for the Denver Post, Peggy did not own a car. So when she left work the evening of February 10th, 1987, she walked home. A friend who was staying at her apartment had taken Peggy's keys and gone out earlier that evening. Upon having a wee too much to drink, this friend went home and went to bed, locking Peggy out of her apartment. Peggy chose to wander from bar to bar, calling her friend periodically in hopes that she would wake up and Peggy could get let in. Around midnight, her friend woke up and Peggy went home to change clothes. She then went out to one of her favorite bars, Prime Minister Pub and Grill. Once at Prime Minister, she saw her on-again, off-again boyfriend, and he was there with another woman. They ended up spending the evening at the bar. He offered her a ride home, but she left the bar on her own accord at about 1.15 a.m. on February 11th, 1987. Peggy was killed sometime between leaving the bar at 1.15 a.m. and 7 in the morning when her body was found by a cyclist. The cyclist noticed a bloody curb and found Peggy's body in a field nearby. 
Peggy's body was staged and her clothes were pulled in a way that exposed her body. There seemed to be no attempt by the killer to hide her identity. She was stabbed in the back with a very sharp blade, most likely similar to a scalpel. Flesh from her left breast and groin area were also removed by the killer. Peggy's purse was found with her and the contents seemed to be intact. There were 28 footprints found near Peggy's body. It appeared that the killer had murdered Peggy on the sidewalk where there was blood on the curb. They then drug her body while walking backwards to the spot where she was found in the field. Investigators deduced this due to the drag marks in the dirt and that the footprints were facing the sidewalk. Peggy's on-again, off-again boyfriend was soon ruled out as a suspect. He left the bar with the woman he had initially showed up with, and she provided an alibi for him until about 3 a.m. that morning. Investigators believe that Peggy was killed shortly after leaving the bar, so that puts him outside the time frame to murder her. Another lead came up that became a dead end. Friends told police about a Derek that had been visiting from New York that Peggy had dated briefly. The woman who had been staying with Peggy the night of her death, Sharon DeConnick, said that Peggy had met Derek at the Laughing Dog Saloon. Peggy's regular roommate, Barb Kohler, who was out of town at the time of the killing, also mentioned Derek. Publicly, there has been no comment on if this man was identified or if he was eliminated as a suspect. Friends also knew of a mysterious man Peggy had tried to end things with. He was a 24-year-old that just kept bugging her. Her friends weren't sure of his name. It was reported that this man came to her apartment on January 30th, within weeks of her murder. She insisted that she did not want to talk to him and locked the door. He is described as being around six feet tall and with a huskier build. His hair has been reported to be longish blonde hair, reddish blonde, or brown hair. So not a lot of good information about the hair color there. <laughs> Any lead from this has also not been publicly released. Investigators soon locked in on Timothy Masters. Tim was 15 at the time of Peggy's death. His home was by the field Peggy's body was found in. He actually saw Peggy's body in the field that morning, but didn't report it because he thought it was a mannequin. And just a thought here, like how many mannequins are floating around out there that you always hear this? Like, I feel like you barely even see them in stores. And it's just kind of funny how common the sentiment is. And maybe it's just like people not wanting to think the worst. Or maybe I've just consumed too much true crime. Because like, I'll be driving on the highway and pass a garbage bag in the road and be like, should I stop? Is it maybe a body? Anyways. <laughs> The evidence against him was circumstantial at best. The prosecutors pointed to his violent drawings and writings, saying that they were a rehearsal for the crime to come. One of the knives he owned also had a scalpel in it that could have been consistent with what was used in Peggy's murder. Investigators ended up visiting 10 stores in Fort Collins, and they found matches for 12 of the shoe prints found at the scene. One of these matches was a men's dress shoe that could be purchased at the Tom McCann store in Foothills Fashion Mall. Tim had never owned a pair of these shoes. One footprint at the scene did match Tim's tennis shoes. The shoe print matching Tim's was facing away from the curb. This matched his story of stepping off the curb to see what the object was in the field. 21 fingerprints were also found on the items in Peggy's purse. 
Some were identified as Peggy's, and some were her boyfriend's, which is to be expected. The rest of the fingerprints found weren't matched to Tim or any of the other seven suspects they held. I can't find anything on these other suspects, so I assume they were ruled out quickly and probably never reported on. Timothy Masters was convicted of Peggy's killing in 1999 and was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. After reading what information I can on the case against him, I have no idea how they convicted him. This prosecution must have killed it. And it seems like a rough sentence for a kid who was 15 at the time of the crime. Please leave me a comment on social media about what you think of this, because it seems like Tim should have never been convicted based on the evidence that's been laid out in newspaper reportings. After DNA evidence ended up ruling Tim out, he was released in 2008 after nine years behind bars. The DNA evidence that released him was found on Peggy's blouse cuffs and the waistband of her panties. This DNA was skin cells. Some of it matched her boyfriend, which again could be expected, but the rest has not been linked to a new suspect, at least not publicly. This was the main piece of evidence that overturned Tim's conviction. Tim was fully exonerated for the crime by Colorado Attorney General John Southers on June 28, 2011. Tim filed lawsuits upon his release against the Fort Collins Police Department and Larimer County prosecutors. He was paid out $5.9 million by the police and another $4.1 million from prosecutors. After Tim's exoneration, Scott Kimball came into the picture as the possible killer. Kimball was shown to be in Fort Collins within months of Peggy's death. In August 1987, he got a ticket for harassment at a business that wasn't far from where Peggy's body was eventually found. His whereabouts on February 11th specifically have not been confirmed. Investigators noted that Kimball had experience as an outfitter and was familiar with animal anatomy and kill shots he would have been capable of the strategically placed stab wound found on Peggy's back. It killed her in one strike. Kimball was arrested in Montana three days after Peggy's body was found, but that would have given him more than enough time to travel there even if he had committed the murder on February 11th. COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, 
or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. The second case Kimball has been linked to is one in which the victim is not from Colorado. Circumstantial evidence was found possibly connecting Scott Kimball to a 1998 cold case in Utah. This victim, called the Maidenwater victim, was found on April 20th, 1998. Her body was found about 45 minutes away from Lake Powell off of two-lane state highway, State Route 276. The body wasn't well hidden and was quite obvious to a passerby. It also showed little signs of decomposition and was thought to have not been there long. The female body was wrapped in a sleeping bag, garbage bags, and a child's rug. Her fingertips had also been cut off. Authorities worked on her case for about two years until leads ran cold. Investigators were hoping to place Kimball in the area around the estimated time of death for the Maidenwater victim, and he was the only person of interest. But with no identity for the woman and only circumstantial evidence, no charges were brought against him. As of early 2018, the Maidenwater victim, also called the Garfield Jane Doe, was still unidentified. She was thought to be 37 to 45 years old at the time of her death. Her DNA had been tested and showed she was of Hispanic or Native American heritage. Later, in November 2018, a huge break would come in this case. After only two months of reopening the investigation into the Maidenwater victim, they identified her as Lena Reyes-Geds. Lena was from Ohio. Her identification involved a lot of luck and good timing. While Utah authorities were looking into the case, police in Youngstown, Ohio, were updating pictures and other information for their missing persons files. Prior to this update, a picture for Lena had been unavailable. The police in these two states were brought together by a person in California who is a crime connoisseur, just like us. They had been looking over and comparing missing persons information and noticed the similarities between Lena and the Maidenwater victim. This person reached out to State Bureau of Investigation agent Brian Davis and let him know what they had found. The Maiden Water victim's DNA was then compared to Lena's relatives, and it was a match. And this is what I love about the true crime community. It's an obsession that can actually create some closure in cases like this, and investigators are open to hearing from people that find things that seem off or seem like they could be a match. And it's a really beautiful way to honor those people that have lost their lives in such a terrible way because we can continue to tell their stories and even tell their stories until they're solved. Lena's husband, who reported her missing, committed suicide in the early 2000s prior to Lena being identified. For unknown reasons, he has never been considered a suspect in her murder. Investigators soon began releasing information to the public, possibly connecting Kimball to the crime. The evidence relating Kimball to this murder include a rope knot that Kimball had used on one of his previous victims, Terry Kimball. 
The body was also wrapped in a play rug for a child. It was one of those rugs with like roads and houses printed on it that you'd maybe play with like toy cars or things like that. Kimball's son thought that they owned a rug matching the one found with the victim, and he believed that that was around when he was five. This would have been 1998, the same year that Lena's body was found in Utah. Lena was also disposed of in a similar way to that of Leanne Emery's body, one of Kimball's other confirmed victims. Leanne's body was also found in Utah. In 2011, Kimball had confessed to killing a person near Height, Utah in around 1998 or 1999. Height is relatively close to where Lena was found. He was familiar with the state, having spent a number of family vacations in Utah. Additionally, when investigators tried to negotiate to connect Kimball to more murders, they gave him pictures of possible victims. Kimball then made a mark on the ones that he may have killed. Lena, who was then still known as the Maidenwater victim, was included among the people he indicated that he had killed. But investigators and Kimball never fully worked out the deal for him to confess, so he still has yet to admit to Lena's murder. Newspapers would link Scott Kimball to a third case in 2010. This is also a non-Colorado crime. This was the murder of Tom Wells in 2001. Tom had been with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Seattle for 18 years at the time of his death. He was 49 years old and the father of two children. On October 11, 2001, he sat in his home and was shot through the window by someone laying in wait in his backyard. There was an initial suspect in the case. Investigators looked into a Seattle businesswoman that Tom had failed to prosecute in a federal fraud case, but the lead fell through. It would be nine years until the case would be revitalized with connections to Kimball. There's not a lot reported on this portion of the case, so as much as I would love to elaborate on what this connection is, I'm just not able to. In 2020, a grand jury was convened to review new information about the case. In Mike Carter's reporting for the Seattle Times, it was noted that should Tom's profession be the reason for his death, it, quote, would be the first federal prosecutor killed in the line of duty in U.S. history, unquote. However, the main witness in the proceeding denied some of their initial statements, and it led to a perjury charge and basically a halt to the entire grand jury investigation. The fourth case that has been publicly linked to Kimball took place in 2004. On October 25th of that year, a woman's body was found in an alley behind a strip mall. Her hands had been cut off, as well as one of her nipples and some flesh near her groin. There was no clothing or identification near the victim. A sketch was put out immediately after she was found. And I will say, when you take a look at this sketch and then who the woman was identified to be, it is just uncanny. I mean, sometimes sketches can totally miss the mark, but this one was spot on. It took two months to identify the body as that of 26-year-old Katrina Renee Powell. She was initially identified by her sister-in-law, Dechelle Powell, after she saw the police sketch. The final positive identification was made with dental records. It was determined that Katrina had died late on the evening of October 24, 2004, the day before her body was found. Katrina's hands have never been located. And the coroner was not able to determine if the mutilation to her body was done before or after her death. 
Katrina and her brother did not have an easy start to life. They were abandoned by their parents at a young age. Katrina struggled with drug abuse and had been working as a prostitute. Deschelle described her as being as close as a sister. In Kevin Vaughn's reporting for the Denver Post, Deschelle is quoted as saying, quote, Every time I saw her, she was sober, and she was hungry, and she was clean, and she loved to play with my daughter, and she was happy. Unquote. Katrina was last seen the day before her body was found. The theory is that Katrina had been picked up near Colfax Avenue in Denver, a known location to find a lady of the night. She was then taken to the suburb of Westminster, about 20 minutes from Denver's Capitol Hill, where her body was found. The FBI started looking at Katrina's case in 2009. FBI Special Agent John Grusing was the one to alert investigators to the possibility of Kimball being her killer. There are a couple of details that could implicate Kimball. Katrina's body was dumped near one of Kimball's former workplaces. Katrina was also vulnerable and was currently working as a prostitute. We know from Kimball's past that he chose to prey on women like this. In one conversation, Kimball claimed that his cellmate killed Katrina. And we know that Kimball tries to implicate people near him in his own crimes. So it's not far-fetched to think when he says his cellmate, he actually means himself. Kimball has failed a polygraph regarding Katrina's death. But as of right now, all of the evidence in this case is circumstantial. Without any physical evidence or a confession, the case against Kimball cannot move forward. So that was another huge chunk of information I threw at you. So let's break that down with one big musing. Let's think about how these four crimes are similar and what pieces are different. In this episode, we covered the murders of three women and one man. Ironically, the same number and ratio as Kimball's confirmed victims. But there is a lot going on in all of these cases. Both Peggy and Katrina were reported to have areas of their flesh removed. Lena did not. Peggy, Katrina, and Lena's bodies were left in very obvious locations and were found quickly. Both Lena and Katrina had no identifying items left with them, whereas Peggy's purse was found with her. Katrina was vulnerable and fell into Kimball's tight. And Peggy and Lena were traveling or walking alone and could have been easy targets as well. Tom's death, on the other hand, is totally different than those of the women. I think it's totally reasonable to assume that Kimball has killed other people. It seems unlikely that he'd go on such a quick and massive killing rampage and have no background of that in the past or at least some type of violence in his past. I like to think about it when you're on a really restrictive diet. Like, you can do it for a long time, and then you just have this moment where you just binge. And then maybe you can diet for a long time, and then and then you binge. To me, it's kind of that same psychology. Granted, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm also not a serial killer, so I can't speak too well on either of those behalves. But I would have to think if you're trying to kind of suppress that part of your brain and those needs that you're having, that at some point it would just build and you'd have to do something. So, I mean, you can make the argument that the four victims that Scott Kimball is confirmed to have could have just been like that one outburst, but it's just so hard to think that in such brutal murders that that was really the only time he ever did it. However, 
there do seem to be some really big differences in these cases. And personally, I'm kind of skeptical that they were all Scott Kimball. In an article by the Associated Press, Kimball himself said, quote, You can't go around and accuse me of every missing person or every single homicide. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's an easy out for investigators, unquote. I mean, take that with a grain of salt, because after he gives a quote like this, he also brags or indicates that he was involved in other murders. So whether he's guilty or not, he definitely is still playing games with investigators. I do think in all of these cases, the police definitely have more than what they are releasing to the public about why he should be involved. And that's the smart thing to do that will help them down the road when they get an informant or get more leads that, you know, not all of that is out to the public. But I just do really have a hard time believing that all of these are his victims. First off, Tom Wales just doesn't seem to fit in. His death is so specific and so targeted. So unless Tom was involved in a court case or other dealing with Kimball, I just don't see a good motive and connection there. It is so exciting that Lena was identified, but I'm doubtful on this case too. A big connector to Kimball is the child's rug Lena was wrapped in. And I have to think there's hundreds of thousands of those out there. So it doesn't really seem like it'd be very compelling evidence in a courtroom. And clearly that's why we haven't reached that point yet. But I certainly do hope that whoever was responsible for Lena's death does get caught. I do think there could be some connection to Kimball just because of the area she was dropped in and the way that she was disposed of. It does maybe seem a little bit more indicative of him. And I probably wouldn't be surprised if he was ever prosecuted for her death. I do find the similarities between Peggy's case and Katrina's case really interesting. According to the Journal of Forensic Sciences, mutilation occurs in only about 26% of murder cases. So it really doesn't happen as often as we think and really I think is a bigger indicator of possibly a profile for a criminal or connecting that criminal to other cases because it just doesn't happen as the movies or TV would have you believe. But while their deaths are very similar, they also occurred 17 years apart. And I think this possibly decreases the likelihood of them being the same person, whether it's Scott Kimball or not. Mutilation seems to be a very specific pattern, so you would think you would see something happening within that 17 years that would also match that kind of pattern. Hopefully, we will get answers in Peggy's case as DNA science continues to develop. They do have DNA from her clothing that can be compared to Kimball. I am assuming that they may have not tried this yet, since as the public, we have heard nothing. And I'm thinking there's a big chance that maybe the sample is too small or maybe kind of incomplete, and that investigators are waiting for additional testing methods to become available. If you have any information about the murder of Peggy Hetrick or Katrina Powell, please contact the Denver Police Department at 720-913-6010. To remain anonymous, you can call Crime Stoppers at 720-913-7867, or you can text number 274 Three, seven, then enter DMCS, that's D as in dog, M as in Mary, C as in cat, S as in Sam, and then type your message. 
If you have information about the murder of Lena Reyes Gids, please contact the Garfield County Sheriff's Office at 435-676-2678. And finally, if you have any information about the murder of Tom Wales, please contact the Seattle Police Department at 206-625-5011. You can also report an anonymous tip by calling Crime Stoppers at 206-343-2020 or by texting number 274-637-ENTER-TIP-486 and then type your message. Like I said, the story of Scott Kimball is a complicated web, and I completely understand why they called investigating him Operation Snowball. I just felt that his prison break and these potential victims were just too interesting not to cover. I hope you found all this information just as interesting as I did. And if you did, please help others find the podcast. Make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcasts, and recommend the podcast to a friend. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Please comment with your thoughts on this episode or suggest a crime. And as always, you can visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials. Also, if you're needing something a little light for your murder-filled brain, hop on over to Amazon where you can purchase my collection of adolescent poetry. Just search the title A Teenager's Diary by Amelia Allen. It's free to read if you have a Kindle Unlimited account. Thank you so much for spending this part of your day with me. I know we are all busy and it is such an honor to know that you are taking the time to listen. I appreciate it so much. So that's it for today, but join me next Sunday for another episode of Altitude Crime. Episode 5, The Victims of the Colorado Hannibal, Scott Kimball, Part 2, was written, produced, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.